I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss Blade Runner, The Matrix, The Truman Show, Total Recall, Inception, Shutter Island, Gilligan's Island, not Fantasy Island, Star Trek, Room 104, The Haunting of Hill House, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and Orange is the New Black. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Hello, everybody. Um, Welcome back, and thanks for for tuning back in. We're kicking off Season 2 of I Think Therefore I Fan tonight, and um, we're we're looking at the new season and quite excited. Yep, looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. What what do we got going? What are are some of the things? I'll just mention a few. Uh, We're going to have an episode on The Handmaid's Tale, and uh, also one on gangster movies, just to name a few. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we talked about doing a thing on Rick and Morty, and that might happen. I, I got confused. Um, I thought it was Mick and Rorty, and I was thinking, like, wow, we could do a thing on, on you know, Richard Rorty and um, Mick Jagger and, no. you know, the intersection of no. their thought. But you were not confused. Apparently this, this cartoon <laughs> that the kids are all um, hopped up on and, um, is good stuff, too. Okay, so um, this episode is on um, skepticism, right? And skepticism in pop culture in particular. So um, I don't want to come off too luxury, but I want to make a couple distinctions at the start um, just to sort of clarify what we're talking about. So I think there's, there's maybe three broad senses of the term skepticism, right? Um, there's the kind of ordinary usage that maybe occurs um, most often in combination that doesn't have anything to do with the others, where people are just sort of skeptical about something. Um, Someone will say something and someone will say, I don't know if that's true, I have my doubts. Um, And then there's this sort of more recent phenomenon, this this branch of skepticism that um, is maybe more closely aligned with, you know, conspiracy theorists. not, not all of this type of skeptic is a conspiracy theorist, um, but many are. So, you know, Penn and Teller would, would fall into this category. I don't think they're conspiracy theorists. But they're sort of skeptical of lots of claims, so they want to investigate those claims. And then, of course, the conspiracy theorist version of this would be somebody who, you know, is, is skeptical of, of claims that most people would take as just fine, say that the, you know, the, the press is legitimate and that the... You know, Food and Drug Administration is telling you when your food's healthy and not poisoning you and things like that. I was um, uh, looking around to, uh, I was Googling uh, skepticism in film just to see if uh, uh, there were some obvious ones that I wasn't, hadn't remembered. And uh, 
there were these pages that I ran across where skeptics of the type that you're talking about right now, uh, I mean, they really wear it as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell on these pages that they're that it's it's almost as if they think that there's some sort of uh, critical thinking, um, that they're better critical thinkers in 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 light of being taking this attitude of skepticism toward everything. Right. And they're the important protectors of the rest of us, right? That, that we will all be woke in some sense mm. by it's an, the it's, things. That they'll save us from the, the evil government. And, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon. Yeah. So I, I have some experience um, with, with this. So um, I was the director for um, almost 20 years of the Society for Skeptical Studies, um, which is philosophical skepticism. It's the one I've not yet defined, but it's it's definitely not the conspiracy theory mm-hmm. um, brand of skepticism and not the just a, hmm, I, I wonder if what you're saying is true kind of skepticism. And there was this fellow um, that was writing me from prison all the time, right? So he was, he was one of these conspiracy theorist skeptics. And um, he would send me these letters, and I guess he thought because I headed the Society for Skeptical Studies that... <laughs> That, you know, we were some investigative group, but he would want me to look into matters that, you know, he was sure that was happening. You know, that, uh, you know there might be this municipality in, you know, Pennsylvania or something um, that, you know, claims to be putting fluoride in the water, but instead is, you know, putting um, liquid nitrogen or, you know, I mean, they, they were just crazy things. Um he was good for about two or three of these a year. They, they would take several pages. They were handwritten. Um, put a lot of time into it. And it always, you know, ended with a plea for me to investigate. And um, Oh, my goodness. Did you, well, did you, did you respond? Uh, did you investigate? I, I didn't respond. I, I, I didn't investigate. <laughs> um, but I, I shared the letters with my friends. Um, so I, I feel like that was... A, you spread the word. A, a way of honoring him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I was going like, look, I get these crazy letters. <laughs> but I was well aware as I was doing that, that that might motivate someone to investigate. So, I, mm. you know, in, in some small way, I, I did my part, which was virtually nothing. To bring down the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he wasn't worried about the Illuminati, right? I mean, he's, he was worried about like the guy who drives the Budweiser truck might be delivering cores, you know, yeah. and okay. putting Budweiser cans on it. I mean, you know, this is real serious stuff. Um, okay, then the other kind of skepticism is the one that we're actually interested in, right? This is philosophical skepticism. Um, so, you know, philosophical skepticism is the idea that, you know, for some sort of systematic reason, um, given the, the nature of human beings, um, they're not capable of knowing certain kinds of claims. And there's all, all different versions of this. Um, some are what we want to call global skepticism. Some are more local skepticisms. Do you want to say a little bit about that distinction? Sure. I mean, so global skepticisms, uh, global skeptical hypotheses. Well, maybe we should even say something about skeptical hypotheses first. Yeah. Um, So a skeptical hypothesis is a description of a logically possible scenario Mm -hmm. in which uh, all of our, everything would appear the way it presently appears, but all of our beliefs on the basis of those appearances are false. Great. So, to me, it appears now that we're sitting here in our fabulous podcast studio. With, <laughs> it does. And, and the, the, you know, the $3,000 espresso makers just over there in the corner. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's like outside the Beatles recording studio. There's thousands of teenage girls and they're 
you know, if they get just a glimpse of us, they cry. But that's all false on the skeptical <laughs> hypothesis, right? So, Because maybe you're dreaming or you're a brain in a vat mm-hmm. or whatever. Or you've been hypnotized or mm-hmm. any, any number of stories. Good. Yeah, okay. So, so the kind of skepticism that we're interested in, philosophical skepticism, is always going to make use of one of these skeptical scenarios, um, a skeptical hypothesis. Uh, and you mentioned global and local. So what's... Right. So a global skeptical hypothesis is uh, powerful enough, uh, has a wide enough scope to cast all of a person's beliefs into doubt. Mm-hmm. Whereas by contrast, a local skeptical hypothesis is one that make, might make you question a belief or a handful of beliefs. Um, so I'll give you an example of a, a local skeptical hypothesis. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, just kind of paraphrasing Dretsky here. Um, imagine that you uh, you went to the zoo last week, and then you read in the newspaper uh, that there's been a, a scandal that your zoo has uh, been trying to to convince people that a, a cleverly disguised mule is actually a zebra. Right, their zebra died. They don't want to lose the, the admission <laughs> money, so they've they've gone out back and. And painted a mule. And they're just doing this to one of their, to one. And so uh, you, you're you reflecting on your experience at the zoo and you think, uh, did I witness, did I observe a, a zebra or a cleverly disguised mule? Okay, that, that would be a local skeptical hypothesis because it just casts into doubt that one belief, the belief about what kind of animal you saw that day. Right. And if you're a zoologist, you would have no trouble with that. But if you're mm-hmm. a layperson, mm-hmm. how could you be certain? Um, I want to talk about global skepticism as well, but um, let me let me just take a moment, maybe a, a personal moment here, to to apologize. Um, Fred Dretzky was a great philosopher, and he passed away a, a handful of years ago. Um, but if he were here today, um, I would just want to say sorry for that one evening when he came to our university and we had a reception, and I cornered him for about ninety minutes or maybe one hundred and twenty minutes. Um, and told him my whole dissertation. <laughs> he, he was a really good sport. I'm sure he was very grateful for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I could just imagine. Um, boy, that, that must have been horrible. Um, but c- keeping with the, the theme of the night, um, how do we know that even happened? <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, so a good example of you know, global skepticism is Descartes' um, famous evil demon argument, right, where you're to imagine an all-powerful but evil godlike figure is, is using all its powers and to deceive you. Um, so certainly God could make it seem to me that I'm sitting here in our fabulous podcast studio with the tens of thousands of screaming teenage girls um, out front and the espresso maker and all of that. Um, when in fact, um, there is no physical world. There's, there's you know, none of those things. There's just me. I'm a non-physical thing, just a mind. There's, there's God. And God's putting the ideas in me. And this hypothesis is, it's thought, at least, powerful enough to cast doubt on everything, that there's a physical world, uh, my ability to reason, my, my memories, um, or virtually everything, right? There's Descartes' famous cogito. Um, yeah, so these are the kinds of skepticisms that I think we're particularly interested in, um, and they're the ones that, that make their way into pop culture quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And a little later, maybe we can talk about some of the ones that don't make their way into pop culture and, and how fun that would be. But um, what, are, what are some of your sort of favorite 
bits of skepticism. In well, first I would culture. say that I think this is, you know, you, you witness which kinds of uh, philosophical tropes or ideas or what have you make their way into pop culture. I would argue that the that skeptical hypotheses and skepticism in general is maybe the very most common. Oh yeah. So yeah. I, I would. I mean, go, going back for decades. Yeah, I would, and and I think um, I think it's trippy to people. It's com- it's compelling to people because it's it's one of those things that really blows your mind when you think about whether whoa maybe everything I believe is actually false, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's uh, why it has force for folks and keeps getting done over and over again. So obviously the, 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 uh, the paradigm case of a, of skepticism, uh, being used in film, I think is the matrix. Right. Right. That's the, the one, you know, about half my students nowadays have seen the matrix. Oh, I know it's aging out. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't long ago that almost a hundred percent of them had either seen of it or mm-hmm. heard all the, yeah. Seen a bit, seen it or heard all the details, um, and you know, as a teaching tool, it was great. Yeah, I try to use it now, and it's it's not. You have to go with Inception usually is a um, it's right. one that they've seen and is more right um, um, recent. There's a time, dear, not not too far into the future, where um, the kids will laugh at you for thinking Leo is cute when you were um, <laughs> in middle school, and he'll just be some old geezer, and they won't know Inception either. Um, so yeah, so the Matrix is a variation on Hillary Putnam's brain in a vat thought experiment. There's there's other elements um, as well, but Putnam sort of hypothesized that you know, um, what if he were a disembodied brain um, floating in some vat of nutrients and he's hooked up to some supercomputer, right? And presumably the way that we experience the world. Um, you know, via our sense organs involves, um, you know, our sense organs sending electrical signals to the brain. So if, if they can do it, then certainly, a, a, you know, a well-constructed computer could send the same kind of signals to the brains, uh, to our brains, giving us this, you know, rich experience um, that, you know, seems as real as could be, but for all intents and purposes um, is, is not, right? Um, Nothing in our experience is real except for maybe a handful of very general things, such as, you know, that we're physical objects or something, right, mm-hmm. on the, that hypothesis. And so the Matrix um, does a nice job with this. They, they, they work out some of the science fiction. They, they show that it's not just a disembodied brain floating in a vat, but basically the bodies are in this, this sort of catatonic... Gelatinous. Yeah, goo, a, a catatonic state inside yeah. of the gelatinous goo, and then being the, they're somehow that, feeding the, these supercomputers. I don't remember exactly how that relationship works, but they're plugged into these supercomputers that now rule the planet. There's been a war, right? And the humans are essentially batteries, so yeah, the, the, right. the, the plugging in allows the computers to take the energy from the humans, um, and the well, humans are, are content because they're in their their you know little vat worlds. Um, Seems like turnabout is fair play. (laughs) Somebody can take energy from us for a while. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think that, I think, well, one thing I think that these stories like The Matrix uh, do is to um, express the human value, the the value that humans put on um, knowing the truth, 
Uh, now, I know that doesn't sound like something we particularly care about in this political climate, but I think fundamentally human beings do. And so, you know, in The Matrix, you see people choosing, uh, with the exception of one character, choose after they've been, after they've come to find out that they're, uh, that they're essentially brains and vats, um, they don't want to go back to their Cush, ma- or Cush Matrix life. They want to. They value truth and authenticity more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, with with one exception, and right. and he ends up dead. So that um, that should be a lesson. Yeah. So you mentioned value and truth, and that ties in sort of nicely with a, another bit of pop culture, right? So um, in the the original Total Recall movie, right, the idea is that you could plug in in the same sort of way, but rather than um, you know, just being in the matrix and never being aware of it, people would willingly choose to plug themselves into these sorts of machines in order to have a certain kind of experience, right? So um, in Total Recall, um, the main character had paid to have a an espionage vacation that, you know, he, he winds up in some, you know, 007 type scenario. Um, but once you get in it, you don't know that you're in it. Right, so you're having all these experiences that, but they're fake. But you've willingly chosen it, and that's kind of an updated version of um, Robert Nozick's experience machine, right? Which is a, a brain in a vat kind of hypothesis, but instead you you plug into a machine, um, and the idea there is, you know, he asks, would you plug into this machine if you could have any sort of great experiences you want, right? And that the the, the Caveat is that you plug in for life, so you're swapping your life out for for you know a life that's completely fake, but you don't know it's fake, mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. Um, and when well, tell me what your experience is. When I query students, I you know it's somewhere around fifty fifty. Someone is it really for you? So sure, I maybe oh, I'm overselling no. it. I yeah right. I have like two or three brave souls who'll say they would plug in, mm-hmm. and then everybody else will say they wouldn't. Yeah, I, I start talking about winning the Heisman Trophy and, you know, having, um, you know, Rolls Royces. No, I do not sell it. I do not sell it hard enough. I, yeah, don't, I don't actually describe what's going on in there. I you're just not say making the experience. Ma- oh, yeah, you got to describe it because you'd say, oh, I don't know, maximal happiness. Uh, I don't know. What's that like? Right. Okay, right. no, good And point. then you good say, point. well, you know, your husband is a Chippendale dancer. And then they go, oh, my, okay, that's, that sounds great. And, <laughs> Um, you know, and, and your dog never dies, right? Um, Wait. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's, it's not a, not a, a sale, selling, point. selling point for us. No, of course it um, is. But yeah, that's that's a pretty sort of fun variation on the theme. There's a, another version that I really like a lot um, that doesn't get at skepticism. And I've, I don't know the answer to this, but I've always wondered whether they, they took it from Putnam's thought experiment and sort of stripped away the philosophical components, or um, it was just a coincidence. But there's this great episode of Star Trek, the original series, um, where there were these brains and vats, and they would, um, you know, people come to their planet and they'd, they'd somehow capture them. I, I don't know how they do it because. They're just brains and vats. But you can hear them thinking, right? So maybe they've, they've got minions. Oh, I've that, seen this. They capture. Okay. And then they, they pit them in battle against each other, and then they bat. And this this one line um, has sort of resonated with me my whole life, or 
Resonate's the wrong word because it, it, it's just stuck in my head and it's not doing any good. Mm-hmm. Um, but 40 Quatlus on the newcomer, right? So they're, they're betting Quatlus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Kirk is the newcomer, Captain Kirk. And, mm-hmm. and one of them bets 40 Quatlus on him. <laughs> and the others you know, take him up on it. And, and this brain in the back gets rich. Which begs the question, um, you know, how much money do you need if, if you're a disembodied brain? Burning, you know? you, I thought I was remembering this episode, but you know what I was remembering is the man with two brains and how the brains are also talking. And Yeah, this, this is a whole sort of variation on the, <laughs> the brain in a vat theme um, where, you know, they do this on Gilligan's Island and these, you know, Freaky Friday type shows. You, just, you take brains out of people, put them in other people's heads, and then somehow... In between, when they're just in jars, they their, their thoughts are, are amplified. Yeah. So yeah, so the Matrix is a great example. Um, another example that I like a lot is the Truman Show. Um, oh yeah, we just watched that with Henry recently. Yeah, and so I mean, the way we've described it, skepticism, especially these sort of global skepticisms, say um, the way things appear is in fact not the way that things are. So, you know, if you're, you're seeing an apple on the counter, um, there's not one. Your, your brain in a vat or an evil God's making you think it or you're dreaming or you're hallucinating or something. What, what they did with the Truman Show that I really like is it's not skepticism about stuff in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that, that Truman um, experienced was real in a sense when he, you know, talked to his wife, he was talking to a person. Mm-hmm. When he got in his car, he was in a car. But they had created this sort of skeptical reality such that at the next level of understanding, right? right? Beyond just the, you've got this sort of hard sense data, I'm seeing this thing, it's red, it's this shape, right. it appears to be three-dimensional, that's all good. But everything else was false, right? right. He was, right. His whole life was this kind of lie. He didn't kind of, he didn't know essentially who or what he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, which you know is, is related to a whole sort of interesting host of skeptical um, scenarios, right? So the one we've been describing is what if everything I'm experiencing is not real? Um, but a variation on that is what if all the things that I believe about myself Mm-hmm. are false, right? And there's, you know, lots of, of shows and um, movies over the years where people sort of doubt themselves. But lately there have been some real hardcore skepticisms, right? So a, a great example of this is the film Shutter Island. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's Leo again. Oh, uh, <laughs> Leo. Um, <laughs> gosh, if only we were 19. Um, <laughs> we'd have a crack at him. All right. So, <laughs> Um, Leo's picky. Um, okay, so, yeah, in, in Shutter Island, you've got this character who, um, you know, everything he's experiencing is real as far as what he sees. You know, when he, when he believes that he's in a particular cell, he's in that cell. Or when he's outside the cell on the cliff overlooking the water, um, you know, he's on the cliff overlooking the water. But the whole time he believes that he's an FBI agent... Um, and he's investigating a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, he's investigating a conspiracy, right? So, so many of these conspiracy theorists are right. Um, can't just be a coincidence that that movie has that element, and we're talking about this. 
All right. I suppose it can be. Um, it's not a coincidence. Yeah. We're doing it on purpose. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. Yeah. But, um, and then the, the, the big reveal, I, I realize this is a spoiler, but we'll do the spoiler warning at the beginning so you won't even hear this. Um, and also, it's, it's been a sufficiently long time, um, is he's the, the, the most violent inmate in the mental institution, right? So, mm-hmm. he, in a sense, he's kind of investigating himself. <laughs> Yeah, and, and just doesn't realize it. Um, yeah, so so there's this sort of nice distinction between, you know, skepticisms about the way the world is. There's skepticisms about um, what people sort of take themselves to be. Um, there's skepticisms about memories. So a good example of skepticism about memory is seen in the film Blade Runner. Right, which is based on the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So there, you know, memories are implanted in people as a way of controlling them. Um, Blade Runner is also a good example, um, especially with the sequel, of a different kind of skepticism, right? So we talked about, you know, the global skepticisms and the skepticisms about the external world and the skepticisms about your particular identity. Um, there's also um, a, a nice tradition of skepticisms about the kind of thing that one is, right? So we see this in Blade Runner um, and then more recently in Westworld, right, where various characters find out that um, they're not humans at all, but they, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're part of the robot group. Right. So that's, that's a kind of fun skepticism. Interestingly, right, we're, we're doing this episode on skepticism, um, I've spent a lot of my um, professional life writing on skepticism. Um, I've spent a lot of my time writing on pop culture. The most interesting philosophical skeptical argument um, is one that, at least the one that I find most interesting, is one that hasn't seemed to make its way into pop culture, right? Um, So the Cartesian stuff is there like crazy and all the interesting variations on it. Um, but I'm talking about the, the skepticism of Hume, right? So the, the great Scottish philosopher from the 1700s, David Hume, who argued for a kind of skepticism, at least with respect to our knowledge of the external world, um, not because of some far-fetched scenario that he couldn't rule out, you know, such as that he was dreaming or hypnotized or a you know, brain in a vat or so forth, um, but rather, he just looked at our normal belief-producing practices and pointed out that, that there's something circular in that, right? And, and hence, not justified, right? So our, our belief in the external world um, relies on us to use inductive reasoning, um, which seeks to justify itself um, via an inductive argument, an argument that says, well, in, inductions worked you know, in the past, um, therefore, you know, it, it should work in the future, but you can't, you can't justify induction via the, or via induction. So as Hume points out, our, our knowledge of at least the external world, um, winds up being unjustified, right? It, it seems to me uh, maybe fairly straightforward why that hasn't made its way into pop culture is that. Um, the the other kinds of skeptical hypotheses like lend themselves to telling a story, where yeah yeah you know um, and so you can explore that whole thing and then you can have the big reveal 
mm-hmm. that, that the story is just a story, essentially, you know. Right, right. This um, would just be some kind of sciencey movie where he's like, hey, are those, um, those finches, are they different? You don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, there, there's other kinds of skepticisms as well. We've we've got some guests coming up, um, and they're going to at least a couple of them will mention Peronian skepticism. So maybe we'll leave that for them. This week we talked to three professional philosophers and asked them to tell us about their favorite skeptical arguments. We talked to Otavio Bueno from the University of Miami. John Collins from East Carolina University, and James Beebe from University at Buffalo. Otavio Bueno, what skeptical argument are you talking about today? Well, the skeptical argument I would like to talk about is an argument that shows up very briefly in the first meditation um, that Descartes wrote, but it's not an argument that most people discuss. So there it is. To find the cards talking about the well-known uh, argument from the senses that our senses can deceive us. How do I know that I'm not being deceived uh, when I'm seeing something, right? Particular something far away and I cannot see very well. Um, and then he considers uh, another situation. So, well, how about if I'm, I have a and of a piece of paper in my hand, uh, there's, I'm sitting by the fire, so there is enough light. Um, and in many ways, he's considering an epistemically ideal situation. Um, so how could I possibly not know that I have this piece of paper in my hand um, by the fire? Um, then the cut raises this argument. That's the one that I want to talk about, um, which is, he says, well, I would have to be mad Right? I have to be uh, someone who is not in full control of uh, my own uh, cognitive and mental abilities. Um, and interestingly, Descartes then sort of very quickly move uh, to the now also well widely discussed dream argument. Right? I might be dreaming uh, that I'm sitting by the fire and so on, and off he goes, and he leaves aside this argument that we can call the argument of madness. Uh, And I find that argument extraordinarily powerful. In fact, I think it's more powerful than the other arguments that Descartes spends time talking about in the rest of the meditations, the argument of the senses, the dream argument, and the, the evil demon argument. Why? Because this madness argument uh, would be an argument of the sort, uh, well, if I know something, I would know that I'm not mad, right? Uh, But how can I not know that I'm not mad, right? Because things would presumably look like exactly as they are. It seems to me that I'm perfectly full control of my cognitive abilities, and um, but I may not. And in that case, I may not be in a position to know all kinds of things uh, that I take to know, including that I have a piece of paper in my hand um, at that moment. Now, what makes this argument particularly powerful, I think, is because it challenges several things at the same time, right? It challenges ordinary perceptual claims, 
such as having a piece of paper in my hand, but also it challenges any possible use of my own cognitive abilities. Um, so that includes reason about something, that includes remembering something, that includes any kind of mental action that I may be engaged with when I try to settle whether I know something or not. Um, and it's troublesome because this is an argument that challenges the very idea of reason and the faculty of reason uh, that we may have. So even what Descartes later on will talk about when he says, well, maybe there is an evil demon that is constantly deceiving me. Um, and he says, well, but for me to be deceived, there has to be, I have to exist. I could not possibly be um, deceived, deceived and not exist. Uh, and that's how eventually in the second meditation he gets his first certainty that he exists. Um, well, whether the cogito, right, the certainty that he knows that he is, that he exists, whether the cogito is an inference or not, something that scholars debate, uh, the point remains that uh, the truth of the cogito cannot be recognized if our one's rational and cognitive faculties are in question. And that's exactly what the madness argument would do. It would challenge the very idea that those uh, cognitive faculties could be reliable, right? And you don't know whether they are reliable or not because, or if you can trust them or not, because you might be mad, right? Um, of course, the madness here, you can think of it as uh, something that need not be a mental health issue or not, right? Sort of kind of a, an epistemic madness uh, where uh, you have no grounds or at least the grounds can be questioned as to whether your own cognitive faculties uh, are to be trusted or not. And what's also interesting and makes these arguments very powerful is the fact that we're dealing with a, a common phenomena, right? It's not something extraordinary implausible in many ways, like the idea that there might be an evil demon constantly deceiving us, right? It's something that has full generality, but it's something close to home, right? The idea that you might be, your cognitive faculties may not be functioning as you think, and you cannot tell because you are invoking them as you think about things. It's something very present. That makes that argument powerful, surprising, and extraordinarily interesting. I think that's an argument that re deserves far more attention than it has received. Even Descartes only dedicate you know, a couple of lines to it. Um, but I think if you take it seriously, it's an argument that challenges the very idea of reason in a far more dramatic and radical way, the radical ways than any of uh, the other arguments that Descartes has engaged. Now, there, some people have written about it. So there's a beautiful paper about this madness argument by a Brazilian philosopher called Osvaldo Porchat. Unfortunately, the, 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 the paper is in Portuguese, but I'm sort of working with some colleagues in Brazil to try to get his writings uh, in English so that they can be 
more widespread and discussed. I know also that Michael Williams is aware of it, at least in informal conversations with him. He mentioned a, a, this argument as well. And I think it is an argument that I find the most troublesome of all skeptical arguments. John Collins, tell us about your favorite skeptical argument. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast, Richard and Rachel. Um, what I'd like to talk about today is uh, uh, a skeptical argument from Sextus Empiricus from Outlines of Skepticism. This is, I think, an underappreciated uh, approach to skepticism. Um, and Sextus Empiricus uh, does not deny the possibility of, no of knowledge, but he uh, argues for uh, suspension of judgment. So, uh, as you know, he um, cites a number of cases where for a single person, um, different modes of experience are contradictory, give different information. So the experience of a young person versus that of an old person, uh, the experience you have when moving compared to when you're still healthy versus sick, and then dreaming versus awake. Um, and he says that if two sources give you conflicting information, you ought to suspend judgment uh, about the accuracy of both of them unless one is found to be epistemically preferable. Now, one thing I like about this kind of a dream argument is that it allows you to sidestep the question about uh, whether there is some criterion for distinguishing between dreaming and waking experience, which is a focus uh, for Descartes, for instance. Uh, I think his approach presupposes that we can do so. Um, now, you might think that uh, this sort of dream argument is uh, easily addressed. Uh, isn't waking experience clearly preferable to dreaming experience? Well, here I think it's useful to bring in a little bit um, from uh, sort of a hot topic today, um, peer disagreement among experts. Um, and there's a recent paper on this, bringing this in to Sextus by my colleague Michael Weber, recently published in Synthes. Um, if you and I have access to all the same information and arguments, and I believe that P, but you conclude that not P, what should I do? Um, of course, I could capitulate and take your side and believe that not P, or I could be dogmatic about it and insist on P, um, or, and this might be the best option, I could suspend judgment with respect to P, um, unless I have some independent reason to think that I am likelier to get correct information uh, or likelier to, you know, uh, evaluate it correctly than you are, then I shouldn't favor P just because that's my view and I have my arguments for P. Um, and so uh, you might think that there are some obvious reasons to prefer uh, waking experience to dreaming experience. So it's well-known fact that uh, waking experience is more orderly and coherent than dreaming experience, which is, you know, surreal and disorderly and sort of crazy. Um, but that's only a reason to prefer waking experience if the world, in fact, is coherent and orderly. And what reason do we have to suppose that? Well, that's just information gotten, from, gotten while waking. 
And so to assume that the world is orderly because waking experience tells us so, which is a reason to prefer waking experience, begs the question against dreaming. We need a reason to prefer waking experience to dreaming experience that is uh, an independent reason to prefer waking experience that doesn't assume any information gotten through waking experience which will, you know, again, beg the question in favor of waking experience. I think there's a number of other uh, reasons you might pick uh, waking experience as preferable to dreaming, but I think all of them have that same characteristic that they beg the question in favor of uh, waking experience. So that's it in a nutshell. James Beebe, what skeptical argument did you find interesting? Well, um, I think the skeptical argument that I find... um, most interesting, if I had to pick just one, is an argument that I think a lot of philosophers wouldn't think of as a skeptical argument. Usually when we think of skeptical arguments, we think of things that go like this. How do you know you're not just being deceived by the matrix, this, these evil robots that are tricking you about, about the world outside your mind, or, or things like that? Um, but the one that I sort of like the most if I have to pick just one, especially for maybe people who aren't professional philosophers, is just based on um, considering how many people disagree with us and uh, the opinions that we have about a lot of important areas in life, particularly those in religion, politics, and morality. So if someone has some strongly held political convictions or moral beliefs or religious beliefs, um, there is this tradition within philosophy going back to the ancient skeptics, the Peronian skeptics in particular, as found in the writings of Sextus Empiricus's uh, outlines of Peronism, where the skeptic says, uh, uh, so you have this or that uh, political belief or moral belief or religious belief. Well, Are you aware of how many people out there hold completely different opinions? I mean, they – many of these people, most of them, are just as thoughtful or reflective about the matter as you, Um, and yet they've come to hold entirely different, contrary views from your own. Um, Sure, there are some people who uh, jump to conclusions and are are closed-minded and biased and all that. But that can't really account for the millions, if not billions, of people out there who hold different opinions from you. Um, I think this kind of exercise where you you get someone to consider uh, actual disagreement uh, amongst people who are, you know, um, not loonies. You know, there's loonies out there, but just there's a lot of people that are sensible, well-meaning, well-intentioned people that have radically different views. I think these kinds of reflections point toward a kind of skepticism. They tend to, I think, make you a bit more agnostic, at least a bit more agnostic about your views than they did before. So one of the things that I like about this kind of what I think of as skeptical thinking is that it doesn't begin from uh, bizarre stories. I think stories that are based upon the matrix or Rene Descartes' idea from the early 17th century that maybe all all the physical reality is radically unlike what you think it is because 
and an all-powerful evil demon has deceived you about it. These stories, I think, are very uh, are very interesting. They're worth thinking about. They have they have very serious implications. But sometimes, for a lot of people, there's this barrier. Uh, there's this resistance that they put up to wanting to play along. They're like, oh, come on, I'm not floating in a vat of nutrients hooked up to all these electrodes, being having my brain and central nervous system stimulated by a race of evil robots. I mean, shut up. That's stupid. Be quiet. Go away. There's this – for a lot of people, there's, there's this resistance or unwillingness to think about the traditional uh, skeptical scenarios that have – been at the center of philosophical discussion of skepticism. And the thing about thinking about actual disagreement is it doesn't ask someone to consider a bizarro sci-fi scenario. It's just real life. I mean, there's just people here in the real world, and they think you're wrong. Uh, and so I, I like the fact that we can uh, maybe be, begin to take someone in uh, or begin to challenge someone to be Maybe push them in a skeptical direction by beginning with real, more real life stuff. Um, now, now, obviously, uh, when it comes to trying to push someone in a more skeptical direction by focusing on radical disagreement out there, there's only so many different domains in life where there's enough significant or radical, irresolvable disagreement where you can really maybe push them in a skeptical direction. I mentioned religion, morality, and politics. And the skeptical hypotheses of, of Rene Descartes and his evil demon, or the Matrix, or Hillary Putnam's brain in a vat, which is just like the, the, the Matrix, you're a vat floating in a, I mean, sorry, you're a brain floating in a vat of nutrients hooked up to a supercomputer uh, via electrodes, and it's stimulating you to think that external reality is radically unlike it really is. Each of these kinds of skeptical hypotheses, the matrix, brain and that, and evil demon, um, they're able to – if you can get people to feel their pull, they're able to challenge maybe every belief you have about external reality, whereas the arguments from disagreement that I've mentioned aren't really able to do that. I mean we don't disagree about whether there's tables and chairs. I mean there's the occasional philosopher or physicist or oddball who thinks maybe there's real, really no such thing as tables or chairs. Um, so even though, even though the skeptical arguments from irresolvable disagreement can't call into question um, every belief you might ever have, I think they're, the fact that they're, they're realistic, they're grounded in sort of real-life situations of con people holding contrary opinions, that provides a sort of a nice starting point for getting people to, um, to think skeptically, to think that maybe they don't know what they think they know. Maybe they should be a bit more agnostic about uh, the firmly held beliefs they've always had. So, so that, I would say, is my... Favorite skeptical argument if I had to pick just one. Okay, Rates, what are we liking this week? Well, we've really been enjoying the HBO series uh, Room 104. Right, second the season of that. Yeah, uh, it just recently started back up again. Yeah, they're they're doing a thing where they do two episodes a week, so you get an hour worth, but then it's going to be over really fast. 
So the idea behind this show is that they explore all the happenings in one particular motel room, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, what the experiences that different guests have. And we've said that it's almost like a Twilight Zone kind of thing because they don't always yeah. stay linear. Like they're not always kind of linear storylines. They're not always um, things that could presumably really happen in a hotel room. Right, right. Some paranormal stuff. Some of it's little slice of life thing where they're not little plots that tie up nicely. You just get some glimpse into some kind of weirdness. Um, don't want to spoil it too much, but um, lots of fun. Right? Uh, I'd say this. If you're a Michael Shannon fan, check out Michael Shannon's episode, of room, the one he stars on of Room 104. Yeah, I think that was episode two or episode three of season two. Called like Slide Ride or something like that. It's some dating app name. Or, yeah. Yeah. Really fun. Really fun. Yeah. All right. Also, um, we we started talking about this the last episode, um, but it's been a while. We wrapped up The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, we just loved that. Yeah. Great, great fun. Um, if you get spooked easily, it might be a little too scary for you, but if, if you don't... If you have um, nerves of steel, I guess, then... Yeah. So yeah. One, of, one of my students... Um, said that basically it, it's just season one of um, American Horror Story. I, I don't know if that's exactly true, but there's some merit to that. There's, there's, there's something to that in that, you know, it's a, it's a classic, like, haunted house uh, um, show. But I, I, I think, th- to me, it, even, as much as I love American Horror Story, it, this Haunting of Hill House seems like it has more substance. To me, it's more of a character study. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Yeah. Um, and it, it's... The rare horror story that actually has things to say about family relationships and mm-hmm. growing up and coming of age and and all of that. You said it's based on a novel by Shirley Jackson. Right, right, right. So, right. And, um, so the, the film The Haunting was also based on that. Um, and neither um, claimed to be all that true to the original story. But as I understand, this has a lot of the, the same elements. Um, and then we went and saw... The Crimes of Grindelwald, which I loved. Yeah, oddly the critics aren't crazy about that and the fans aren't terribly crazy about uh, it, but I I thought it was just as fun as um, Fantastic Beasts. It carried the story along nicely. Um, it, it sets up the next one really well. I don't, you know, I think there's a thing that fans do where, you know, they, they uh, you know, when it comes to these, these, uh, fandoms that are like very important to them, like mm-hmm. Harry Potter, um, that they they already have a certain set of expectations about what they want to happen and the kinds the range of things they don't want to have happen, the range of things they don't want to change. And so I think it's much harder for a, a Harry Potter movie or you know a Star Wars movie to be successful with fans uh, if it, it well it just it, it sets very high expectations for itself from the outset and uh, if if fans aren't getting exactly what they pictured, then they won't like it. So, Right. Um, one thing I really appreciated about this is, you know, there was, there's a backstory that um, J.K. Rowling has, has talked about, and that's a, a you know, physical, intimate relationship between Grindelwald and Dumbledore. Yeah. And... Um, or at least, I, at least they were... Lo- they were in love at one point. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we don't know. I don't know if there's actually a physical intimate we, relationship. We weren't there. They, they, they <laughs> probably touched wands, you know, right, right at the end or something. But um, who knows? At any rate, um, I think it's fair to say we were both kind of worried that they were going to 
gloss. I didn't. I only meant that literally. Um, <laughs> that they were going to gloss over that and sweep it under the rug because it was a major motion picture yeah, release. And, seemingly did not. And they they didn't. And so that that was um, admirable. It was it was nice. Um, and then finally, we've been finally watching the most recent season of Orange is the New Black. I don't know that there's a lot to say there. Um, the previous season was horrific, and this season's just kind of lame. Um, yeah, better than the last, but, though. But still sort of well into the disappointing range, um, given the strength of the first couple of episodes. Today's listener musing comes from Doris Jane. Doris Jane writes, I have a question about bagels and sandwiches. Why is a bagel sandwich a sandwich if you put turkey and eggs on it, but when you put cream cheese on it and put the top back on, it's not a sandwich, it's just a bagel? Great question, Doris Jane. Yeah, way, way to swing for the fences there, Doris, um, <laughs> philosophically speaking. Yeah, um, well, what's the answer? So, I mean, one possibility is it is a sandwich, right? I mean... Right. I'm I'm one of these um, people that essentially wants to include in the category of sandwiches anything with sandwich material and stuff in them, right? And so okay. that would be you know any kind of sort of outside carb. Mm-hmm. So you know I've I've talked to people about this lots of times. Are hot dog sandwiches? You bet. Are <laughs> taco sandwiches? Yes. Are wrap sandwiches? Sure. Which in okay. turn makes burrito sandwiches. So I'm I'm gonna tell Doris to just check her ontology before she wrecks it. Um, <laughs> okay, but here's here's what I think makes it a tricky case, and let me see what you think about it. Did you say a tricky case? Yes, a, a tricky, a not tricky a turkey. case. Okay, yes. okay. So uh, you put obviously you put peanut butter between two pieces of bread. Mm-hmm. Sandwich. Sandwich. Okay. You put even I'd say because I ha- I like to have a hummus sandwich for lunch. You put hummus between two pieces of bread. Mm-hmm. Sandwich. Let's go a step further. Mm-hmm. Um, you could make a cream cheese sandwich. People people have those all the time. You take two pieces of bread, some cream cheese, the exact same cream cheese. You could take the cream cheese off a bagel and put it in the two Did, pieces of bread. Do you want to say that's a sandwich? I do. I don't know. It's less of a clear case. Uh, and and I'm just going to say as an aside, that's too substantial. That, that's the wrong um, cream cheese to bread ratio. Those cream cheese would just sort of get lost in that mess. It is, but I, I would still think it's a sandwich. Okay. I, but I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I, like I said, I think all these things are sandwiches. Okay, but wait. So, you, didn't hear my tr- you didn't hear my turkey case yet. Okay. okay. So I'm just going to say, if, if, if you got two kibbles like of dog food, Okay. And put a piece of cheese between them and the kibble's on the outside. That would be a sandwich. Okay. Um, okay. But I'm take, take this case. Um, if, if you were to make for me a sandwich for my lunch mm-hmm. that contained, uh, the, where basically you, you, you squirted some mustard and mm-hmm. then slapped the, the top piece back on, I would say... You forgot to make me a sandwich. You, you forgot to put anything on that sandwich. That sandwich isn't a sandwich anymore. It's just mustard between two pieces of bread. I, I would say you forgot to recognize the value <laughs> of the mustard sandwich. <laughs> okay. Okay, so clearly I'm saying it's a sandwich. Um, you, you think it's not a sandwich. You're well, with Doris. I, you think it's just I it's think just it depends on whether you want to understand the cream cheese as a condiment. Because I think mm-hmm. that you can't... A sandwich can't be a sandwich if it stars a condiment. Like if... Or... If it's a one-man show and that one man is a condiment. Um, peanut butter is a condiment. No. 
Yeah, of course it is. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever make like a turkey and peanut butter sandwich with no. peanut butter no. instead of uh, instead of mustard and then a little more peanut butter instead of lettuce and then no. some turkey <laughs> or chicken? No. All right. Is hamburger a condiment? <laughs> <laughs> just, just trying to get our bearings no, straight here. No, Condiments, you know when you see them. All right. I, I'm afraid we're, we're not going to have a meeting of the minds on this one. Um, Doris, take yourself out and get yourself a nice bagel sandwich, um, maybe a bagel, some cream cheese, whatever you like. Well, that's a wrap. Episode one of season two is in the can. And once again, everything came up Charbonneau. So what are we, what are we talking about next week, right? Um, next week, we're going to talk about various forms of absurdist philosophy in pop culture. Should be a lot of fun, or it should be kind of depressing, but... Uh. <laughs> so, so the absurd's a highly specific thing, right? Um, would that include questions such as, how come a bagel is a bagel unless you put turkey in it, and then it's a bagel sandwich, even if there's cream cheese there? No. No. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.